Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers. Welcome to episode nine of season four. I'm so glad you're listening today. Before we get started, I'm going to remind you of a few things you can do to help out the podcast. So if you love this show, please subscribe to it, first of all, so that you can receive a new episode every week. And also rate and review it. Um, Apple Podcasts is a great place to rate and review it. We already have some wonderful reviews there. I'm really thrilled with a few recent reviews that we received. Thank you so much, my listeners. If you want to join our conversation about the show, you can join the Facebook group at Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group on Facebook, or you can also follow us on Instagram at Historical Fiction Unpacked. And if you want to go above and beyond and support the show financially, you can check out the options for that on my Patreon account, which is patreon.com slash Allison Treat. Allison is one L, so A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. Now today I'm going to be sharing a conversation I had with Adele Myers. Adele is the debut author of the new novel, Tobacco Wives. And you guys, it's such a fascinating conversation and it speaks for itself. So I don't think I need to say any more about Adele because she tells us all about herself in the interview. So I won't hold you in suspense any longer. Here is my conversation with Adele Myers. Adele, thank you for joining me on the show today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Your debut novel, The Tobacco Wives, released March 1st. Can you tell me about this book? Sure. So The Tobacco Wives is the story of a young seamstress in 1946, North Carolina, who inadvertently discovers some dangerous truths about the big tobacco empire ruling the American South. The story mm-hmm. is told through the eyes of a, this 15-year-old girl, Her name's Maddie Sykes, and she inadvertently runs across some information that she's not supposed to see and has to decide what to do with that. Wow. So it's such an intriguing premise. And I understand it was inspired by your own family history. Can you tell me more about that? Sure, it was. It was inspired by the fact that both sets of my grandparents uh, lived lived and worked in Winston-Salem. North Carolina. And that's where Mm. my parents grew up and where they met. They actually met at RJ Reynolds High School. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) yeah, so Winston-Salem is the home of RJR um, Reynolds and was really known as the tobacco capital of the South. And so I, I, yeah, I spent a lot of time there as a child with my grandparents, especially in the summers. And one of them was one of my grandmothers was a hairdresser for the wives of the RJ Reynolds executives. And she, I believe she referred to them as the tobacco wives. If not, maybe one of my other grandparents did, but I was just fascinated with the idea of these women as a little girl. And so that, that was the seed of the idea. Yeah, it's really, it is very fascinating. Um, So, where you dropped off to spend the summer and had to help your grandmother dress hair, like um, <laughs> no, not your no, protagonist. No, I. But I did go to uh, Winston Salem um, in the book. the The fictional town is called Brightleaf, but I okay. I did spend 
several weeks every summer with my grandparents and I would go back and forth between their houses. And one of them, my other grandmother was a seamstress. So that's kind of what inspired me to, to use uh, that profession for my protagonist. I thought it was a good way to get her into the homes of the wealthy families and give her a reason and kind of an anchor event. Um, because she's helping to prepare, helping to make gowns for this big gala event. So that was right. why I went that way instead of the hairdresser direction. Right. Interesting. So I was perusing your website a little bit and I saw that you have some photos posted mm-hmm. um, on the page about tobacco wives of 1940s life and some of the cigarette advertisements. Um, yes. So, I mean, it's amazing to me that they were, they used to push cigarettes as healthy as what, what the doctor ordered, I think <laughs> yes, was yes. one of the, it's the phrases, the slogans. So what were your thoughts? What, what was your reaction when you were discovering this or did you already just know because it was something you were exposed to through your grandparents? Well, I, I actually have worked in advertising and public relations for the last 20 plus years. I majored in mm. journalism in college and I've always written, but my day job all these years has been in advertising. So right. I, I wasn't surprised. I had seen some of those and I had even um, studied advertising in college, but it is pretty shocking to see some of the headlines and, and also to to see. And I think now at an older age and after having so many years of experience in advertising, I can see clearly what they were doing and the way they were trying to shape the market by getting out ahead of the, like they knew that science was going to eventually come out about the dangers of smoking. So they proactively Mm -hmm. went out these messages to position it, as you said, as healthy to use doctors, um, because that gave it more credibility. You know, back then the doctors were like gods. <laughs> they were the only yes. ones that had the information. You couldn't Google your symptoms back then. Uh, <laughs> so, so it was very effective. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was very, very, it was brilliant um, on their part, although certainly not, <laughs> certainly not with the, uh, the consumer's best interest in mind. Right. So, um, I haven't studied this industry very much, but it's clear you believe they, or maybe you know for sure that they knew what they were, they knew there were dangers. They knew that this wasn't good for people, but they purposefully deceived the public. Well, that's, it's interesting because I, that's what I found so fascinating is, and I set the book in a time where, where they didn't know yet. And that's what I thought mm. was was really interesting is how do you respond? How do executives respond? And because it was fiction, I, of course, dialed up the drama and I made it very clear that they knew when they were doing this advertising. But it's hard to prove. I mean, when you look back at um, the archives of, for instance, when the tobacco executives were called before Congress to testify, even at that time, they when the science was out there, they claimed to not know that nicotine was addictive and that smoking was addictive. 
they, <laughs> they went down the line of all these men, like seven, I believe there were six or seven of them heads of all the tobacco companies and asked each one. And they all said, I do not believe it's addictive. Oh my goodness. I know it's, it's mind boggling. Um, I feel like you'd know that pretty quickly after beginning to smoke. <laughs> yes. Yes. You would think so. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I talked with my father a lot. My grandparents have since passed away, but mm. he had heard a lot of stories and he actually worked in the tobacco factories, um, during his summers when he was a teenager because it paid really well. And he just, mm. he talked about how proud everyone was before they knew just how incredibly proud they were of what they had built and, and the fact that the whole city of Winston-Salem and, and most of the state was really funded by cigarette taxes. And, and so it did a lot of good bef- you know, during that time before it became apparent how dangerous it was. So what kind of, do you know what kind of reactions people had then once the truth began to come out? It's hard to find that. I did try to, to find information about how they reacted. I mean, I, I'm, I'm certain that different people reacted different ways. I did find one book really helpful called The Gilded Leaf. And it's, it was written mm. by Patrick Reynolds, who is the either grandson or great grandson of the founder of mm-hmm. RJ Reynolds. And he was the one family member that broke from everyone and actually started a uh, tobacco free movement. And oh. I thought that was really fascinating because yeah, as I was, as I was trying to develop uh, the chapters, when they begin to find out, I was struggling a bit with what was that really like for them? And so there was some information in there um, in that book that was helpful. I think a lot of people were in denial or didn't want to look too closely at it. Um, Mm -hmm. They didn't want to believe it. Um, They couldn't believe it initially, and then they didn't want to. And then I think gradually as it became more and more apparent, I think there were people who, who, were not okay with that and left the business. And then there were others who, for whatever reason, whether ambition or ego or greed, you know, stuck with it. (laughs) Right. I would think for those people who have, you know, a good, a a sense of truth and morality Mm -hmm. that it would be devastating to some extent. Um, Did your dad have any insight onto what, how your grandparents felt or, was that not really something you talked about? You know, we didn't really talk about it. Um, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and they, I mean, they continued to smoke for many years. So, mm, yeah. And it's interesting. I just did an event. Um, I had a speaking engagement in South Carolina and there were so many people there who came up to me afterwards and said, I have, you know, my grandfather worked in the factories or this person worked Uh, Mm -hmm. in the business. Um, and there's so much family history and I think it was, it was hard. It was like a grieving process because, and I I think it's something that's, that's relevant today too. I mean, we're seeing it with coal and in other industries. It's 
what happens when we realize, when we begin to learn more and we know that the way we've always done things is <laughs> not only not good, but terribly dangerous. Right. What replaces that? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, um, it's complicated and, and I'm sure it's painful for people to face. Mm-hmm. So back to the book, Tobacco Wives. Um, I noticed that Maddie has a rocky relationship with her mother. Obviously, um, I don't think you mentioned that her mother actually takes her to, um, her father has died in the war and she's, her mother's basically trying to get rid of her so that she can land another man. And she leaves her with her, um, her aunt, her great aunt in this town of Brightleaf. Um, so why did you add that kind of relationship into this story? Well, I wanted to create, uh, some, urgency or a situation right at the beginning of the novel to draw the reader in. And so this sense, I mean, the book opens with Maddie being awoken in the middle of the night by her mother and she doesn't know where they're going. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to, to use that to, to draw in the reader um, and to pique their interest right away. But I also think it's, it's an important part of Maddie's, story and her makeup and who she Mm -hmm. is, because you see pretty quickly that this is a young woman who's had to grow up fast. And in some ways she's more of the parent figure. (laughs) She's, (sighs) she's lost her father and her mother is basically has a breakdown. She doesn't know how she's Mm going to support the family. She's emotionally fragile. And Maddie Maddie is determined to not, not be that, be like that and to be independent. And, and so she goes Mm -hmm. into this situation with the wives and with everything that happens over the course of that summer with a clear purpose. Mm. Yeah. Um, So what are you hoping that this novel imparts to readers? I know the press release mentioned the power of female connection and the importance of seeking truth. What would you like readers to glean from this? I know with for me with historical fiction, I love to learn about a time period that I don't know much about. And mm-hmm. and so I hope that they will learn something new, um, that they will be interested in this time in history. And um, but I also hope that they will identify with Maddie. And as you said, she over the course of this summer, despite the challenges she faces, she she really comes into her own and finds her voice and her truth and speaks out uh, mm-hmm. despite <laughs> despite what the consequences might be. And I think also she she realizes that all those difficulties that she went through during that during that summer really shaped her life and and I think that that's true for most of us, that often when we face challenges, when we go through really difficult times, it's not until we get through to the other side that we realize, wow, I grew so much from that, or my yes. life took a different path because of that. Um, so I hope readers, and I'm starting to hear from some readers that they do, they are taking that away from the book. Yeah, that's great. 
Is there anything about the importance of seeking truth because of the kind of what was exposed about the the tobacco industry? Do you feel like that's important to take into today? Oh, absolutely. And I think I mentioned earlier the um, the situation with discovering that the industry was dangerous being relevant today. But I, I also think what what went on with the advertising and what is going on now as far as uh, the media and messaging that's out there and misinformation uh, mm-hmm. is incredibly relevant still. Uh, those, yes. those same techniques are being used to kind of shape perceptions, shape what people what people right. think and believe. And, and so I think it's more important than ever to, to know what the sources are for the information you're consuming and to be right. more aware of that. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned that your career has been, um, you've been right, writing, you know, you're in journalism advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, but have, have you always loved to write since you were a child? Can you tell me about that? I have, I, I have always loved to write, uh, even when I was very young and, I recently found a poem that I had written when I was about seven and it was this rhyming Mm -hmm. poem about like a lamb or something. I don't know, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) but my mother had written it out in beautiful handwriting and, and she wrote like a little copyright (laughs) next to it. That was so sweet. And, um, and so I, I love the fact that she did that and, and, I remember I have a lot of good memories of going to the library and reading with her and, and, uh, and she passed away in September. So it's very, it's like even more meaningful to me. Thank you. Uh, that she was like, she was my first publisher. (laughs) That's what I was thinking about. (laughs) You know, she really was. She showed me that my words were worth protecting and worth recording. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Right. Um, Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. So, so I did, I was always interested in writing, but I, my creative writing really took a backseat for many years. I moved to New York city right after college and I got a job in PR at Mm -hmm. an agency and it was really exciting work and I loved it, but it was really all consuming and working in advertising is just as consuming. Um, right. So I, I took some short story writing classes at night and I wrote some things on my own on the side, but it really wasn't until about eight years ago that I decided to write a novel and I started working towards that whilst, I mean, I still was working and I, I got right. married, I have a son so life was full, but I, I steadily was moving towards my goal <laughs> during those years. Yeah, that's great. So then can you tell me how the publication of this book came up about? How long have you been working on it? And I worked for many years on a manuscript and I had, I had input along the way. I was part of a uh, women's a very small writers group where we would Mm -hmm. critique each other's work. And I think that that was really critical because several of the women had published books. They had published YA books and they really gave me a boost of confidence. They, they said, we think you can get this published. And I was kind of shocked that they felt that confident. And I, 
I think that journey over those eight years was filled with moments like that where mm-hmm. I got input, I got feedback, uh, and I just kept trying to get the manuscript into the best place I could. And once I did, I started reaching out to agents and pitching them. And that was, I mean, for me, it was, it took about a year and a half. And Mm -hmm. I probably reached out to 60 to 70 agents before I found my agent. Yes, it was a that that was a tough process because it is yeah it really is i mean no one's sitting around waiting for your novel <laughs> like you really have yeah. to sell it you know <laughs> and there's so many doubts and there were times where i just thought oh is this going to ever happen um and i do think there's a certain amount of luck also that you mm-hmm. need uh because it really is it's it's not just finding the right person, but your story has to be the right fit for what they need at that time for what they're interested in. Right. They could have just there are so many factors, right? Yeah. There's so many factors that are beyond your control and that have nothing to do with your talent or your work mm-hmm. or anything. I mean, there's so many great books and talented writers that, and the stars may just not align for them. So I do I do. Mm-hmm. I worked hard, but I also recognize that there, that the stars did align for me, and I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, I I found an agent who was interested uh, in the in the book, um, and then I I signed with her. I started to work with her. It was it was very eye opening for me because I kept thinking I was done with the manuscript, and there was so much <sighs> revision. Like I was so naive. (laughs) I really was. I thought, oh, she loves it. She's going to help me sell this now. And she and her team, she had two other folks working with her. They had feedback. They had ideas for making it better. And I ended up spending another year revising. Wow. Yeah. Before we even went out, which I was Mm -hmm. just not not expecting, but I'm discovering now that that's, that's not always the case, but I've met a lot of authors who said that, yes, like they ended up (laughs) redoing, you know, huge sections of their work. Um, Before you even started, it started going out on submission to publishers. Right, right. right, Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes like one of the things that they suggested and I was, I was on board with doing this is that the initial manuscript uh, in that version, Maddie, the protagonist was younger. She was 12 years old Mm. and they suggested aging her up. And so now she's 15 and it sounds like a little thing, but because the point of view is first person and it's told through Maddie's eyes, I had to go back and rewrite pretty much like go through the whole book. Right. Because yes. Yeah, of course. Because the way that a 12 year old sees the world is very different than a 15 year old. Right. But it opened up the story and enabled me to, for her to have more insight into what she was seeing. And we also added in a romantic love interest and to Mm -hmm. add another layer to the story. So I'm really glad that we made that change, but that was kind of daunting to go back through and, and revise to that extent. 
Yeah, I'm sure that was a lot of work. And that, but that probably because of the audience you were hoping to attract, it was probably a necessary change, I would think. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And it's interesting, early on, the writing group I was a part of that I mentioned before, because they were yeah. YA authors, I think, I think I got a little off track. And because I was getting feedback from them that it would have been a really great YA book, but mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't want it to be YA. Um, right. But it's interesting. I feel like also my journey has been this this journey of learning when to take feedback and when to push back, when to trust myself, right. when to trust others. I think at times I've I've had I've thought, oh well, someone who's already published knows more, but you have to stay true to yourself too, um, right? And not put so much weight, I think, into what you get from others, or at least temper it, um, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. You need to consider, is this, is this something that I actually should follow? <laughs> right. You are still, you are still the author. So exactly. Exactly. So can you tell me a little bit about your research and writing process? Like, are you still working in the advertising world or is I that, am, are you? I am not. I actually left my job, uh, right before the book came out. I knew I had a lot of travel happening and Mm -hmm. I may, I mean, I may go back. I don't know. Um, because I have a great relationship with the company I was working for. And, uh, so I think that's an option if I'd like to, but for now, I, my goal is to start working on a second book and to be available to to do interviews like this and to travel. I just went to the Tucson Festival of Books uh, last week, which was oh, am- wow. which was amazing. So I'm trying to yeah. just, um, and I feel fortunate that I'm able to to do this right now. So I, so you ask about research and the writing process. So for the research piece of things. I did a number of things. I, I talked to my family members. I read books. I mentioned the one that was written by the Reynolds uh, grandson. And Mm -hmm. I also had to do a lot of research into that time period and what life was like for women since the book focuses on, on women and their lives in the, in the mid to late 1940s. And, um, and I also am very inspired by old photos. And so mm-hmm. I created Pinterest boards. I looked at everything from photos of hats and, <laughs> and dresses and what they wore at the time, but also the whole process of tobacco farming and what that looked like. So f- images, whether photos or, or videos also were a big part of my research as well. So, and then do you do the bulk of your research at the beginning and then sit down to write or how does that work for you? I do, I do enough at the beginning that I feel grounded in, in the, the place. And I, I think I felt that also just from spending so much time in Winston-Salem, that was kind of the foundation of it. And yeah. then I also, as I 
began to write, I would do research as I was writing also when I would come upon, especially things that like, for instance, if a character is making a phone call, I had to, I would have to go and look up and see, well, how common was it to have a phone in the household during those years? And would, yeah. yeah, And would Maddie's aunt who was not wealthy, would she have a phone (laughs) and what did phones (laughs) look like? And so every little detail you really have to, to get right, because I think it can throw readers and you want it to be accurate to the time. Yes. So what are you working on now? Can you tell us about that? So I'm in the very early stages. Um, so I can't really talk much about it, but I, okay, I'm in the research and have not started writing phase, but I, I can tell you that it will be another book that's based in the South. And it will also be about another cover up situation. And this one is mm. not as well known as um, as the tobacco industry, which everyone knows about. So right. I think that's my niche is Southern yeah. secrets and cover up and finding truth. <laughs> so it'll be in a similar vein. Um, yeah, that's exciting. That's that's interesting to me. It is exciting. I'm Damn. I'm getting excited about it, which is great. So this is a question I ask all my guests and we kind of, we touched on it a little bit before when I asked you about, um, you know, the importance of, of finding the truth today also, but mm-hmm. um, maybe I have more to say about it as well. But how do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I think that we, when we identify with characters in a story, whether it's historical fiction or any story, ideally you you identify with them and you relate what they're going through to your own life or to something that you have mm-hmm. gone through or are going through. And and it's it's kind of a hackneyed saying, but history does repeat itself. And so right. I think it's 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 on both levels with historical fiction that you get to identify with the character, but also reflect on the times and how much the times have or have not changed. Right. Yeah, that's true. So Adele, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? So I'm most active on Facebook, uh, which is just Adele Myers and Instagram and my uh, on Instagram, I'm Adele J A M. And then I also have an author site, and there are photos on there, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, if readers are interested in seeing those, uh, my site is adelemyersauthor.com. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much, Allison. I enjoyed it. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation. Don't forget to check out the show notes so that you can find links to Adele's um, social media and her book and learn more about her. If the show notes don't come automatically to your podcatcher app, you can always find them at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. Now, you know, I always leave you with a quote, and this one comes from George Orwell. He said, In a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. So keep reading the truth in historical fiction, my friends, and don't be afraid to speak the truth as well. 
I will talk to you again next week. 